there's a flotilla of about nine or ten boats, these beautiful open-top Canadian canoes, all these lovely wooden paddles, and we're canoeing down the River Dart with marshland to either side of us and rushes and rolling hills and woods and some egrets with their whiteness against the green banks. Beautiful still spring water. Off to our little campsite. So the rain after sun returns the land to life. I think we're about halfway now, and the river is so wide. It feels so un-English. It's like being in a big American or South American river with trees on either side and no signs of civilization. And the pop of trees, the beach, the oak that are just coming into leaf, and all the others still skeletal and red-tipped. Where the salmon will rise, travel the higher. We're in our little cove now, at our first night. It's very foggy. There's lots of dew on the tarp and covering the grass this morning. We're camping at the bottom of this steep hill with this flat piece of uh, grass, this land, going out towards the estuary. And you can see all the different tide lines, low tide with the mud and the seaweed and then kind of mid-tide with the moss and then the moss mixes with the grass and then finally the grass breaks away where the tide doesn't reach but we're expecting quite a big tide because it's going to be a full moon while we're here and I can see an egret picking its way through the mud and the seaweed it's all very calm and tranquil sheep grazing the banks on the other side flocks of birds flying overhead and a very lazy current drifting past. On its way back out, not quite low tide yet, all the way back out to the sea. Um, I've only ever seen it close to water. I don't know how true that. I mean, mm. here it's a bit, you know, it grows in the stream yeah. by, by my house. It's different to hemlock. It is different to hemlock. Yeah, hemlock can grow in dry dry places. Hemlock water drop work, as the name. So I co-founded the old way with with Robin Bowman. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I guess, the behind-the-scenes organiser and one of the teachers on it and sort of make it all run smoothly, I guess. I grew up in the south-east of England um, uh, in on the Kent and Sussex border. I had the run of about 100 acres because I lived next door to a, what is now a nature reserve and was managed by, by a family who sort of mentored me in... in in nature, you know, they had they had rocks and minerals and displays of of butterflies, and they were, they were really into birds. So they taught me a lot of a lot about the different bird songs. And um, so I learnt through them and through being able just to wander freely on this piece of land. It wasn't until I actually moved back to where I grew up and reconnected with that piece of land again that um, that I started to really want to get to know all the other creatures and all the other plants and things and fungi actually I got really in- interested in in edible mushrooms at that point and started to 
you know, really scan the environment for those these different different plants that our ancestors would have eaten. And it wasn't long after that that I actually moved to New Zealand and um, I had to start all over again. It was like being completely levelled. I was like, wow, I had, I had this knowledge when I, you know, when I grew up. And some of the plants are the same, some of the birds are the same. They're, you know, mammals are completely different. And so I felt like I was sort of an alien in... Um, in this different landscape, which I imagine is how a lot of people feel who haven't had the fortune to grow up in the in the countryside as I did. So I sort of realised that I had a duty, I guess, to to help people connect in the way that I now needed to connect with New Zealand. Returned to Britain and it was just like heaven, really. I just coming back to a a time where a place where you really get the seasons. So just every single day, I'd go out and something something new had arrived, had appeared in my landscape, and it was just this, this constant gratitude. And I still feel it. That was seven or eight years ago now, and it, just every day, I just I feel so grateful to live in my home, in my home, you know, in the place that I really belong. It is relatively subtle, so. But so you can touch. You're touching it with your hands. You can. Da- it's only so I don't want to touch the it? juice particularly. Yeah. But um, mm. well. It, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can. T- it's it's not. You know how you get some plants that are phototoxic. Yeah, this one, like this that. one isn't phototoxic. So actually, when I first got back, I started. I went back to uni. My kids were teenagers by then, and um, I studied experimental archaeology as a way to really practice the primitive skills that, that sort of gave me a kick up the ass every day to, you know, to actually meet these deadlines that meant I had to make a, a complete buckskin outfit because I needed it to go and be part of a living museum or I had to um, learn how to do bone making because I was doing a, you know, a project on it. I had um, a moment of realising that I would love to offer a, something like a primitive art school which had a sort of a taste of everything that our forebears used to do and, and to give people, give people the opportunity to drop in in whatever way that they felt more um, aligned with. I guess it's into their ancestral blueprint of, you know, what they, um, where they've come from. The way in for them might, might be plants or it, it might be making a basket with their hands or it might be um, paddling down a river. It says whatever whatever gives you that timeless feeling. I felt like I wanted to offer those different things as a as a way into re- really reconnecting with what it really means to be the human. Yellow flower. The yellow flower. Yeah. So we can eat that one cooked. I mean, oh, okay. Some people say you can eat it raw before it flowers, but I don't personally because it does have a, a toxin in it that increases as it gets a bit older. Because it's knowing our place in the landscape, in amongst all the other species that, that live here as well it's how, how can I be here with that butterfly or yeah, these dandelions and you know, not take all of them just use what I need to survive and not have a you know not have an impact you know have a very very light footprint and maybe leave it better than I found it I think essentially there was a sense of balance and that's what I would like to yeah, very much like to find a way back to there's a timeless sense. I think that um, the hunter-gatherers had a way, a way of life that worked for for millennia, but we've come to a place now, and the, where there's just there are obviously too many people to for for so many of us to all go back to that. But there's perhaps a way through that we can learn some of those old ways and go, and and steer away from the cra- the crash collision course that we're headed on and perhaps come back to a, some kind of mosaic maybe, a way of being 
um, which is a which is partly agricultural on a, on a small scale, partly foraging, and very much living locally within our own bioregions and um, and sustainably. I wonder if so. What happened to them? Do they? I mean, they were sick. Or they were... Coming down here to the river from from the moor, and we live up on, on Dartmoor. And our last module of the old way was was up on Dartmoor. And so to come down here now, you know, the sun's shining on my face now. It's so warm. And the plants are responding to that, and they're just they're way ahead of what they are up on the moor. And I and I think, you know, over the years I've realised just how many edible plants there are. I mean, yes, there are poisonous plants too, and yes, there are some inedible plants, but. I would say the, the, the edible ones dominate and um, there's just so much out there. It's just fantastic. To, and, to, and to be able to walk along a hedgerow and just to, to, to say, oh yeah, hello, dandelion, hello, plantain, hello, purslane and hogweed. And it's just, they all become friends. But actually in river, I, river and well, estuarine plants are some of my absolute favourites. I love love being out and about sort of from midsummer onwards on the, on the, on the estuaries because you can find marsh samphire and sea purslane. There's always lots of sea beet all year round. Um, so those, yeah, those are particular favourites. It feels like you, you, know, you, can, you can just come here and live off fish and, and plants. I think we need about sort of 30 different species of plant altogether uh, on average um, in our, our Western diets, and whereas a hunter-gatherer would eat well over 100 different species. You know, if we think about what we eat in the supermarket, it's it's a very, very limited range. So the more plant, more plant families that we eat from, the more the more benefits we're going to get. And so if, yeah, if, you, if you're getting to know all the different species and, and plant families um, that live in your area you'll realise that, that there's really quite a big diversity. It's so easy in sort of bushcraft circles and things just to, to learn a few skills and just sort of for yourself, um, you know, yeah, make fire with a bow drill, aren't that great? But it's really, it's not about making fire with a bow drill, it's about the feeling that making fire with a bow drill gives you. It's the connection and the appreciation of what our ancestors have actually, how incredibly what geniuses they were to be able to come up with all these things and, and how humans have um, passed on all this knowledge down and down and down the generations and it's and it could easily end with us. So I just feel it's important to have an important way of acknowledging them and giving us that thread back that that connects us and yeah, makes us makes us know where we've come from. Thank you, Hawthorne. Mm. No, that's you know, the Hawthorne song. Really? Yeah, Anna Richardson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So um she's written a song for each of the each of the um the trees. Mm-hmm. And the Hawthorne one goes it's like a, a call and response one. Do you know anything? It goes Hawthorne Green. Hawthorne Green <laughs> Tender in springtime. Tender, Tender in springtime. springtime. Fresh young leaves. Fresh, fresh, lovely. Hawthorn white. Hawthorn white. Flowers of May light. Dance of love. Coming down, but it's dry.
that's a roller, that's why your index finger, then, okay. you, then you can clip that finger and around the main that line. So it doesn't go and then exactly. the bail arm. Exactly. And then I'm going to pass and let go of the thing at the same time. Exactly. Brilliant. Oh, hello. Just felt something to lift my bait off then. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe not. It suddenly went slack, which. No, it's still there. Still got it on. My name's Brad. I'm trying to find out what it's like to live as our long distance ancestors used to. How it feels in my body to do that. So getting rid of the TV, getting rid of the junk food, getting rid of the nine to five grind and seeing what happens, especially by the coast, living by the coast for four or five days. I found that there was very few thoughts in my head. There was just kind of like a beingness so I'm stood on a, a creek. I'm fishing for flounder with <laughs> lugworm and bread. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to catch any, but I'm going to give it a go. Oh, what have I got? Oh, oh I think I had something there and it just fell off. Oh. All right, try again. I love seeing the, um, the animals on the estuary. You know, the, the cormorant sat in the tree. And shell ducks, you know, flying past, making a racket, which is a lovely racket. Seeing the, the land from a, a canoe gives you a completely different perspective. And egrets everywhere. I mean, 20 years ago, you didn't see one, and now they're everywhere. And that's lovely to see. When I first got in the boat, there was a sort of feeling of transition from, you know, busyness to getting in the boat. And, and then I had this sort of strange sense of feeling a little bit jealous of the animals, being, f well, free-ish, you know doing their thing, but um, no clock, you know, to go by. I'm a builder in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, so I'm physical pretty much all day long, my feet all day long, using tools, making a racket, making a load of dust. And this forces me to not do so much doing and a bit more being, you know, a bit more patient with... We're not really noticing the passage of time either. There's no clock to watch. So, um, yeah, it's different. And then for the next two or three weeks, I hanker for going back to it until a sort of busy life takes over again and I kind of, it goes to the background, but it's always there sort of niggling at me, wanting to come back. And I don't, I mean, I can do spirituality, but I, I mean it in a very practical way, you know, and, and maybe the spirituality falls out of that, but I mean it from a very fundamental, fundamentally biological perspective. You'll feel how we've evolved to, to be. That's it, you know, I'm sort of banging that drum a bit too much. But. No. Um, and although you're going to be thinking, well, how on earth am I going to eat that? Yeah. We're going to make a, um, a stock okay. out of them, or yeah. a boiler base. So you're probably going to catch more crabs than you are fish. <laughs> so we're, but we're not keeping the crabs today. Um, I know. So we have an invitation for the morning. And obviously, like all things, it's totally optional. And um, it's a magical experience, as I'm sure you've all My name's Sam. Yeah, I've been with the old way since the beginning. <laughs> um, but we will gather in I guess my passions are yeah, engaging with the fire. Yeah, I guess it's often initially looked at as 
uh, a tool that we can use to you know, keep us warm or cook our food or give us light. There's this, this sense of magic that comes with fire. Um, not only its practical uses, but you know the way you can actually relate with it as another um, almost a living thing. So I see fire as a you know as a teacher and a companion as much as a as a tool. With fire, particularly, I find you know there's something it's so easy to to relate with what it must have been like to uh, to live in these places and how much fire was a you know, it was an essential part of what allowed us to be here. It's definitely a journey, and fire in any context, but particularly fire by friction, is is a real teacher of patience and perseverance. When I'm teaching people, I can I can I can tell when someone's gonna gonna get it. I think that that moment when you know that that smoke turns into a, a tiny ember, I think just and then and then bursts into flame when you blow it into a into a tinder bundle. I think there's just the magic that I experienced in that moment the first time doing that and every time doing that you know seeing that uh, just that magic in people's eyes is, is a yeah, real, real gift it is time now it is time now that we thrive it is time we lead ourselves into the world it is time now and what a time to be alive In this great turning we shall learn To lead in love In this great turning we shall learn <sighs> Morning. Um, so it's about 20 past five. It's currently dark and there's a, a fog everywhere running through the valley, over the water. All the trees are surrounded in mist. And down the hill I can see the hearth fires already been lit. I'm gonna gather around there and then all spread out to sit and listen to the dawn chorus. It was, it was mostly rent, uh, robins. It was nearly all robins at the beginning. Like there were lots and lots of birds singing. <laughs> it was nearly all robins. But a, a dawn chorus is mostly robins, sung thrushes, and blackbirds. The skylark started singing across the stream before. Um, That's the dunnock that joined in after about 15 minutes. Um, that one. It's quite nondescript. You hear that dunnock? It's really almost the most nondescript. It just goes du 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 Dunnock or hedge sparrow. So there's a wave of dawn chorus going around and around the globe. Oh, 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. Never stops. I always get super excited when the first bird is actually in the east. Because when I went to bed, I was thinking, okay, it's the dawn chorus in India. And then I got up for a pee in the night, and it's the dawn chorus in Romania. Now it's the dawn chorus in Cornwall. Does that make sense? And then in four hours it will be the dawn chorus on the eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada. And then it will kind of go through Canada and out the other side. I'm Charlie, Charlie Loram, and I'm one of the facilitators uh, of the old way. There's a sort of tripod of of people, three of us, who hold the whole course organisation, and then there are other facilitators and helpers who come. It's just after breakfast, and the sun is just coming over the hill and beginning to warm us up a little bit. We've just separated off to do various tasks to keep the, 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 the clan going. So um, there are people chopping wood in the background, there are people washing up um, and sorting out water, and I can hear people singing as they go about their, their morning chores before we then get into the activities of the day. The Old Way's two things. It's a, it's a course that we run over six months of every year um, between April and uh, September or October, held in Devon, um, where we visit four different ecosystems and, and uh, participate in the landscape of those ecosystems. We're remembering or exploring, re-exploring how our hunter-gatherer ancestors may have moved across this landscape. They would have followed the food and they would have um, very likely have done a circuit, a sort of nomadic circuit following the food. And that, that circuit could well have been starting just in the winter months um, up on, you know, in sheltered valleys on the, in the high ground where there's plentiful food in terms of, of, of deer um, and plentiful firewood and lots of shelter for, for making a winter camp. And then... Uh, as temperatures warmed, they might have followed the rivers down towards the estuaries, um, which is where we find ourselves now. So there was a way um, in which humans lived uh, in relative balance and harmony with with the the rest of of, of, of life. As hunter gatherers, you know, for for ninety five percent of our time as 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 humans. Um, we've existed as hunter-gatherers and we're now living in this little blip of an experiment which we call agricultural civilization. And so most of what makes us human comes from that time, that 95% as hunter-gatherers. And it's called the old way rather than the old ways. I mean, obviously, it's what we teach here is made a lot of old ways, but there was a way that any hunter-gatherer would understand that where we were just another uh, creature within a whole kinship network of, 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 of creatures and, and, and non-living 
beings. The term the old way comes from a book uh, by a woman called Elizabeth Marshall who worked with the Sandbushmen and she describes what, how she sees the old way being exemplified by them back in the 1950s. What I hope people get out of the old way, this experience, is a sense of belonging, um, a sense of being at home, both in the natural world and, and in themselves, um, sort of shedding those civilised parts of ourselves that aren't our true nature. You know, we all have a memory of how we were as children, that sort of freedom that we once had. And we may, you know, depending on our childhoods, we might just have glimpsed it or we could have fully immersed ourselves in it. But almost everybody has that sense of belonging, uh, feeling at home, particularly feeling at home in a natural setting somewhere. You know, maybe it was a tree in a garden or in a park or a den out in the woods and that sense of play. I see people redis- well, discovering possibly for the first time that humans are an important species within all the other species, within our ecosystems. You know, we are a keystone species, just like the wolf or the bear or the beaver, and that we have an ecological role to play within uh, environments, within biomes, to begin to explore what might our ecological niche be um, clearly, you know, humans have played um, you know, a, a devastating role um, on the planet, but we haven't always done that. It has been a facet of, of human nature um, at certain times in history, but also in other parts of history, and I'm referring to sort of, you know, ancient, ancient history, we've learned from the mistakes that we potentially made and have created other ways of being so that we are um, a regenerative force within a landscape rather than um, a purely destructive force within a landscape. Really what I hope people take away with them is that humans can once again be a regenerative force. So we've got this young 13-year-old, I think he is, um, he's uh, Robin's son, who has just just got the most insatiable passion for primitive skills. He's one of the most highly skilled um, primitive practitioners that I know, and I know a lot who are an awful lot older than him. And he's dead, you know, he's got that youthful timelessness to dedicate to his craft. So he's going to teach us how to make a very primitive fishing. Um, set up that he's successfully caught fish with in the past so he's our tutor for for today and it's just there's something so beautiful about being taught by a 13 year old um, and to be utterly in awe of his skills i'm called tawny and um robin is my dad i'm 14 i love fishing i love flint napping yeah, those kind of skills. Probably tracking for me is like, as far as like bushcraft goes, like the icing on the cake, probably. Yeah, so yeah, that's probably the best part of life for me. I used to live in like a bender, which is like a house made of kind of hazel poles and tops. And um, that's where I was born. And from a super young age, I'd um, you know, like dad would take me into the woods. And I think from when I was maybe like half, like, you know, half a year, he'd like show me um, like penny what would be like, you can eat this and mime eating it and show me foxglove and then like throw it away. You know, like people with nature connection, like much more healthy, like mental health and like 
dad often frames it as like your your ropes of connection and like when those are like severed right like they are a lot in modern culture you're um it's almost like you know that philip pullman book when you have your demon severed it's a bit like that there's this one hawthorn tree near my camp in the woods that has just like i'm so grateful to that hawthorn tree like it's like i've eaten its berries i've like um last year i had kind of like a hard time and i was drinking a lot of heart tonic all from that um like all from that tree and i've used its hooks so much for fishing i've used um yeah eaten like the flowers the leaves made leather out of the berries i was talking to mum about like what gcse's i might want to do and kind of talking about like history and if i want to history gcse and i was like well i'm not really interested in history till it's like you know mesolithic anything like post-agricultural revolution doesn't interest me at all i guess with nature connection i then want to like do nature connection as like pure as possible so and I, for me purity is a lot about this like not having modern gear and then and then that kind of is like what we used to have and then i guess that's like the connection for me probably like i don't know i kind of want to like live in a, gy- a horse-drawn gypsy wagon and snare rabbits but I also, I don't know, it would be kind of cool to, like, go to uni and stuff. I don't, I don't really know. I guess what I hope for, really, is the past, but that's not going to happen. Like, I'd, I, I want to live in, like, a, um, like, pre-megafauna extinction kind of, e- like, egalitarian, incredibly low population, like, wilderness. Like, I want to live in the, like, late Paleolithic, Mesolithic, really. But that's not going to happen. I've got kind of, in some ways, like, quite dark views on the future, and I feel like most of this might come we we're talking a lot about like breakdown and collapse last night and i feel like that is the way that most of this might be like might have to be heading there's a reality there there are just some like bastards out there right and it's kind of and those are mainly the people who like need to stop if we want to change climate change and they're not going to feel the effects of climate change right because they'll be dead so i can't see them stopping anything you know they're making a load of money they're you know I can see them, like, being forced to stop by, like, the collapse of, like, civilization. I feel like that might be the only way we can kind of rise again. Like, all my life, right, I've lived under the shadow of climate change. My my parents did not grow up like that, so I guess, like, there's only a certain extent you can empathise. So I'm Jen Lamarinell, and uh, we are dispatching some crabs that we've just picked from the shore. So we've got a load of shore crabs, and uh, we just went and harvested them from the rocks and the seaweed, and I am now dispatching them by pretty much just putting a knife right down through and cutting them in half. And I'm choosing to do this because it's actually finding it really hard just to take a life just like that. And, you know, we had a conversation about gratitude and the fact that these crabs are giving us their lives and we're going to be taking them in our bodies. And yet it's still not a small thing to take a life. And we've got, I don't know, tens of crabs here. It feels pretty brutal. Um, And yet 
I f- personally feel it is kind of important to, if you're going to eat the stuff, to actually experience taking the life. I've eaten meat, you know, pretty much most of my life, and I always try and eat, you know, good meat where I can. But there's something for me that's been really important about being full part of, you know, taking the life from the beginning and then eating it. And it's made the whole process really, really profound really and obviously right at the beginning we um, butchered the deer we didn't you know take the life of the deer but we um, butchered them and uh, and then ate the deer and you know it just sounds probably cliche but it tasted better having been through the whole process but then the first life I actually took was down at the coast where I um I killed some lobsters, some crabs, some fish, and um, I'm not sure it gets easier, but it it feels like I'm even more a part of the old way now, having kind of been through the entire process and seeing how we're using them and you know being really respectful, but also like it's it's important to be respectful, but also you know this is life and this is us eating and. You know, it sort of makes us think, you know, we don't do this every time we buy a pack of beef from the supermarket. Um, and there is an element of, you know, the amount of food we need, so the amount of oysters, the amount of crabs. You've just got to get on with it. So even I've just, you know, I don't know how many crabs I've um, have killed now, but it's sort of getting a bit more like, okay, this is part of the circle of life and we're not doing this lightly. We're not doing it just for fun. Um, but it's yeah, it's still pretty hard to see these creatures moving and yeah, then just. I think that's okay, Nicole. I was. Um, yeah, goodbye, crabs. Yesterday when we stood here, I said to the group, I said, I can guarantee you that we are about to go out and get enough protein to feed our village and our community for the evening. I guarantee it. And more than that, we could probably collect enough protein in 10 minutes. And, you know, it's, it's not that hard to guarantee certain things. Like, oh, I guarantee we could go get enough stinging nettles to feed us all for greens for dinner or even like in maybe hazelnut season or I'll go get enough but to guarantee to get enough protein from the land and even if you're the best stalker the deer might not be in that place you might shoot a deer to feed everyone but you might get enough rabbits but to guarantee it and the truth is we don't even need to get out of our boats we could literally pick them from around us Oysters used to be so abundant. I mean, in London, in one year, in the 1850s, mid-1850s, 124 million oysters were eaten every year in London. Those oysters are gone. So that, our native oyster, the European flat oyster, is it's a classic example, like the passenger pigeon, of just massive over-harvesting. And a virus knocked them out. But it was massively over-harvested. And so in 1926, we had to reintroduce oysters. So we reintroduced the Pacific oyster, which is the one we're eating, which is the bigger oyster. 
which we're about to go get off this sandbar. But they weren't, they didn't think it would breed because it only breeds in water temperatures of 18 degrees or more. But with climate change and the way things are, and I think they're just warmer water temperatures and they realise in the southern counties they, they have bred. So that they've actually proliferated. And I think the female lays something like, I don't know, something like 20 million eggs she disperses and then the male releases a whole clouds of sperm and they meet and fertilise and within, I think, I, don't, I can't remember, something like 12 hours they start hatching larva and then they float about, might really small until they find something to adhere to. There must be thousands of pounds worth of oysters just within eyeshot here. And the difficult thing is finding them in small enough clumps so you can actually pick them up. Um, so that's the main, that's what we're up to. Those beauties. Pacific oysters. Have you ever had one before? Never. I've never picked oysters. I always thought it was like a, a luxury good that, I don't know, came from somewhere exotic that I never knew about. But actually... There's bloody thousands of them <laughs> on a sandbank in Devon. <laughs> and they're massive. Look at them. Look at these ones. All stuck together. Ah, you want to get the meat sitting on a bucket in the... <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm in the river with my bum nearly in the water, in a very muddy water. Um, the river is about like an inch for my bum. And uh, I'm moving as the river moves, basically. And there's about three people behind me that appear to be nothing really from what I can see. <laughs> However, tonight we're going to have an excellent dinner. Uh, we cleaned about 200 oysters just now and it's basically a big mammoth that's full of mud and stuff and I've got a big thick brush and I'm having to go through every tiny little crevice and little hole to clean it of mud and um, it's a very interesting activity. <laughs> so, um... Everybody at the moment, they're shucking the oysters up. They were just boiled. They were harvested and the, all the grit was scrubbed off them. And they just gave them like a real like hard boil for like 15 minutes. And that just kills everything in them to make sure they're safe to eat. Like, they're easy to open, so they're slightly open. And um, so they're shuck it's called shucking them when you get a little, kind of, a little knife with a pointy end at the end of them. And um, you can easily open them up. Um, and then all the um, oysters, they kind of look like big, um, you can imagine big mussels, like kind of meaty and similar. But um, So now they'll get pan fried in all the flavours. So you can either use olive oil, mainly it's butter, garlic, um, sometimes ale or wine, and um, wild garlic we've had that we foraged, uh, nettles, and um, yeah, that's one way of cooking them. Um, my name is Ida Fabrizio and um, I have been here to manage the half, so I've been um, on the cooking. We try to keep the diet mainly on a um, local, what's grown locally in this country, like traditionally, so no Mediterranean vegetables, so mainly um, kind of like native, like, like root vegetables. Um. <laughs> 
I was just thinking that before though. Uh, no, I've got that. But yeah, everything in nature. But look at that one. Look at that one. Come on. I mean, it's all, all going all the, on in there. I've got like, ten, ten yonis looking at yeah. me. So, like, <laughs> I think there's more than ten yonis in there. <laughs> yeah, you taking a photo. Anyway. So we're going to fry up the female genitalia in plenty of garlic oh, and butter. Within half an hour. Oh my God, it really is. Maybe that's why it's not busy. Ten hours or something. Yeah, yes. But that, look so at that one. <laughs> you want that one, don't you? Look at it. Yeah, anyway. Okay, sorry. So the diet, we've kept the diet um, really simple um, and just not using any vegetables that weren't traditionally grown on this land. And one luxurious item could be lemon as well. But um, they are just nice fried in butter. Butter and wild garlic. Have you ever eaten? Have you had a nice? Have you had one of these yet? Have you ever had a nice one? I had one last night. I had a couple last night, but this is yeah. How was that, No, Sophie. Oh, good. How was that? Yeah. <laughs> so soft and buttery, with lots of garlic. Mm, delicious. <laughs> Are you getting good munching sounds? Yeah. What is it? Like, have you had one yet? No. This is my first oyster. Mm. <laughs> and just tastes of salty, estuary water, sunshine. Yep. Canoeing, a little bit of nettles. Did you say that the pudding? Living in the ocean well, bit, yeah. and the sand. Absolutely delicious. Mm. I had a very deep. They're extraordinary creatures. So once was quite fascinating seeing the shell itself, and it had soil, sort of various ridges, and they were amazing. And then opening it up, and then the being inside had all of these layers and frills, and then it really looked just like a vulva, really. And so it opened up like a mystery, and I loved the, also the contrast between how delicate the inside was and how tough the outside was, and how complex the whole being was. So actually I was nearly in tears for the whole moment. I had an epiphany of sorts and I'm still in a deep space and kind of really grateful. So I think my world will never be the same with regards to oysters and everything else.
My name is uh, Ben and when I did the old way first year at RAN, I was just so ready to do it. I think I was at a time of my life where um, I was ready to really deepen my relationship with nature and also to form connections with with a group of people in that way, in that sort of tribal way, in that old way of living. It was just a very different way of being than I'd experienced before. It was quite a painful journey in some ways because I realised that <clears throat> I actually felt safe with a group of people for the first time in my life, which was a incredibly joyful thing to experience and also painful as well. There's grief attached to that. How, how come I'd lived, whatever it was, 38 years up until that point and not felt what I was feeling with this group of people and, oh my God, how amazing it is to feel that now. I think I've discovered a much softer way of being in the world. I think there are certainly times where you are required to dig deep and you are required to, you know, get on and, and achieve something. But I feel like there's such an imbalance in our culture that that's sort of the only thing that's really valued most of the time in our culture of work and education, that actually leaving some space for a softer way of being felt very new to me and I've found it incredibly nourishing. I feel really excited. That's another thing, you know, that's come from the old ways, just feeling really connected with, you know, more with nature and more with the land than I was before. And I grew up in a rural place, and I already feel like I had a pretty good connection with nature, but I feel like the whole spectrum, you know, things are now in sort of ultra-high definition, whereas before it was it was not quite so <laughs> so clear. So I notice much more when the leaves are just starting to come out on the trees, and that feels genuinely exciting in my body, you know, seeing those really bright, vibrant greens coming out, and it's almost like sort of friends returning, like, oh, the oak trees are waking up, and the hazel's coming out, it's really nice, and, um, and I can feel in my body that excitement for spring and longer evenings, longer days, warmer days... Um, yeah, more gentle time than, than, than winter can be. My name is Ruth. I was really in need of a community and a sense of who these other people are that want to be outside in the world exploring and challenging in the way that I do. And I hadn't felt like I was finding them. And... There's something for me around the very sort of practical approach of just being in mud and looking at mud or <sighs> that opens up a possibility of a ginormous world-encompassing conversation. Or maybe just believing that there are other people that want to have those conversations. I think I lost a bit of faith. I do have the possibility of feeling very deeply alone in the outside world. Um, but more and more, I don't. It feels for me that one of the hugest sensations and thoughts and inhabitings of, of a human being is love. And that in its essence, it is boundaryless in the all of it in the like the the looking the finding of the the plant you know, like so much love in that so much love the love in which we show to every single living being that we interact with 
And the love of community, I think, really is probably, I don't know, in a way, that's almost maybe the heart of it all, I think. I think there's a real love of community. Take me home, take me home, over the green, green hills and far away. Just taking the leaves, or do you want both as well? Both, I can do What do you think? I, I, yeah, actually, um, Robin would love some bulbs. Yeah. To, um, for the fish. Thanks for reminding me. For the, yeah. I'm Biz, and I've, I've been knives. doing the old way over the last year. I just moved to Devon, and I really wanted to get to know the land here in quite a deep way, quite fast. And so it's been really nice to get to know the place I live in and all the different landscapes of the place I live. I think at the centre of it all is is like a, just a different way of relating with life, like a, a different perspective, almost like wherever I go. I guess I'm following more my senses of what's going on around me. At the beginning of the course, it was all about um, creating these webs of connection. And the more that we invest in a relationship with something so the more that I invest in the relationship with fishing for example the more I'll get out of it the more I'll learn the deeper that connection will be with the tides with the water so I feel like I could just do that in so many different directions now I hold retreats and and ceremonies with um with essentially magic mushrooms with psilocybin in quite a therapeutic way I've built this relationship of creating spaces where plants come together with people and plants can have conversations with people what I really wanted to do with this course is actually find my way to those magic places and those altered states of consciousness but kind of like walking rather than flying there you know like not cheating but actually through the hard graft of like you know learning to make a fire from scratch you can really build a strong connection with fire I think it's really hard once you when you deepen a connection with anything to see how it's happened to see even perceive that it's happened I feel like when you get exposed to like wilderness or wildest ways of living and you realise how much we don't have control which is a lot of what my work with plant ceremonies does and how much there is to know by just listening to what's going on around us um, and responding to that rather than just creating things from our mind. I haven't learnt how to survive in the wild, but I have found lots of tools and techniques and ways to bring more of this into my everyday life. We're absorbing so many different experiences, and I feel like part of integrating that experience is to reflect on on what we've learnt. And a really amazing way of doing that is to use creativity. And quite a number of... Over the years, quite a number of participants in this course have written songs about their experiences and I feel, feel like it really helps to encapsulate the potency of what we've learnt but also this is something like songs feel like they have their own life and the more that we practice and the more that we were there to catch them when they come. And I swim with the white swan the riverside And I light a fire by the banks of the river I don't know 
there's, there's something amazing about songs and also that like songs can be used you know like fishermen have used songs or sail, sail, sailors have used songs to get through hard times um, or they've used them as ways of like making the boat work so they can be used in a really functional way but I feel like they can also be used in a real way of like connecting people to place connecting people to people it feels like a a language of the heart and there's just something about yeah we can go and do these practical things during the day but it feels really important to keep the spirit alive and I'll run with the roses through the rocks and the moss and I'll wake with the woodcock down in the grass and I'll light a fire by the banks of the Hi, I'm Matt. I'm sitting in the sunshine uh, making a cordage strap, which is a piece of woven yarn that's going to form the neck piece to a pouch that I've made, sewn together, made from the deer skin that we stripped and prepared and rinsed in brain juice and sorts of things during the course of the program and it's a very special pouch because it is going to contain uh, an as yet undecided piece of jewellery for my little girl she's not little actually she's going to be 21 so this is fantastic for me because this is testing my competence to the limit which is a very good thing for somebody who spends most of his time doing things that he is competent at. By day, I am a leadership development uh, consultant and a coach. And the old way has... Uh, well, it's asked lots of questions, and I, I, I think I've come to an understanding of what and why through reflecting on what the opposite of wildness might be. What is it about captivity in our day-to-day -day lives, in my day-to-day -day life, that the old way has freed up? So I see it as a, a journey to some kind of freeing up or freedom. Originally I signed up to come along because uh, I recognised how much time I spent in, in, in heady intellectual experiences partly because of the nature of my work so um, the old ways um, inherent um, philosophy actually that just shifts one into a right brain perspective on the world I'm really enjoying the process down to the last two inches of my cordage and I'm thinking hmm so I might decorate the pouch. <laughs> it's made me desire things for her experience of the world, particularly at the moment, but in at any time, I'm sure that would be true, which is to give less attention to or, or, be, or be less influenced by or less held by or less gripped by, less had by 
um, the kind of consensus reality requirements that you know living in the UK in the 2020s puts on young people a whole set of expectations that I just don't think are realistic or, or healthy so perhaps she'll she'll fly the flag or represent some of the changes or bring some of the changes to the world that to her society to her world I'll be gone by then um, which will be somehow gentler more human more more the old way Sisters now our meeting is over Sisters we must part And if we should ever meet again I'll love you in my heart And we'll stand by the shore And we'll stand by the shore and we'll stand by the shore And we'll watch forevermore Brothers, now our meeting is over Brothers, we must part And if we should ever meet again I'll love you in my heart And we'll stand by the shore and we'll stand by the shore And we'll stand by the shore And we'll watch forevermore